willing to share his expertise, his experience with us. Father, we know that uh, you're a God who sustains your bride. And as we look through uh, the history of the church, uh, we can't help but see that. And Father, as we look at heroes of the faith and just men who have done great work for you, we understand that it's only by your grace that they were able to do that. And by your strength and the, the leading and prompting and enabling of your spirit. Father, we pray that as uh, Dr. Honeycutt speaks tonight, uh, that your spirit would be doing something in us, uh, challenging us, convicting us, uh, encouraging us, and inspiring us. Father, again, we are thankful for uh, his service to us uh, this weekend, and we pray that we would be a blessing to him as well. Thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you very much. <clears throat> well, uh, before I say anything at all, I should tell you that Dan is an excellent student. I realized that when I did one class with him. And um, and obviously a voracious reader. I have read his blog on occasion, and, and I've learned a few things as I've gone to that blog and, and uh, read, so um, it's really fun to, to finally get to see you face-to-face and look forward to spending a little time with you this weekend. But um, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. It's interesting, the things that Dan just said, even though we didn't talk about all of that, in fact, you never mentioned that you'd heard uh, some of my heart for um, mercy ministry and that kind of thing. Uh, when, the more I start thinking about evangelicalism, uh, because of the history of evangelicalism, we have some real bright spots right. in our history where we have done it right. Um, we're flawed, as Dan said, and um, and you'll see a bit of that. I'm not going to talk a lot about that, but you'll see some of the flaws come out um, in evangelicals. Um, but the, the wonderful thing is that God has used his people to do some amazing things through history. And I hope you'll be encouraged. This is what I've prayed for you for this weekend, um, that you would um, not just get a sense in a broad way of what our history is, but but you would be encouraged by that history, challenged by that history, uh, as we look not only at an overview of it, but then look at the ways that evangelicals have at times bonded together and united for the sake of mission, not just foreign mission, but certainly that, but also for local mission. Uh, so tonight the first uh, lecture is going to be on... Um, Kind of an introduction. And we're going to look at a couple of people by way of introduction, uh, John Wesley and then George Whitfield. Um, after that, we're going to um, show, I'm going to show about a 20-minute uh, DVD of uh, a ministry that was started in our church in Huntsville that has, has God has really taken to places that we didn't know that he would. And I think you'll be encouraged by that as we look at a, a way that churches in a community have come together to make a difference in that community. Um, and then uh, the second lecture we'll look at tonight, and we'll be out of here by 9 o'clock, um, the second lecture will be on an event in the 19th century when evangelicals united, sought to unite around the world for the sake of mission. And so we'll look at that. Tomorrow we're going to look at two of my heroes in the faith, one of which, one of whom you may know, William Wilberforce, who um, led kind of the move to end slavery in, in Britain. But then another uh, man, uh, Lord Shaftesbury, that many people don't know, it's said about him that um, he did, that he lived in the 19th century as well, he did more to alleviate um, the misery of the poor than any person who has ever lived. And uh, so I think you'll be really encouraged by him. He's a flawed man, as you know, Dan has alluded to. Every, every one of us is flawed. But there's a lot to be inspired by um, in these folks. So my prayer is that you'll be encouraged and uh, challenged even maybe to do um, what God has enabled his people to do in the history of the church, sometimes in amazing ways. All right, let's, uh, let's just do uh, a bit of looking then at um, 
George Whitfield. Let's start with him. I'm just going to briefly introduce him uh, by uh, jumping into uh, a story that Martin Knoll has recorded in his book, The Rise of Evangelicalism. And um, on Friday, September 19th, 1740, so we're back in the 18th century, um, George Whitfield is on his second preaching tour uh, in America, in the colonies. Uh, he had been here one time before to start an orphanage in, in Georgia, uh, and now he is in Boston, Massachusetts, about to embark on what will be one of the great preaching tours in all of the history of, of the church. Uh, he would uh, preach in seven colonies um, two to three times a day uh, on, a, on occasion. He would preach to thousands, and it was said that during this preaching tour, he probably preached to about half of the people in those seven colonies. He could preach uh, to, uh, well, he could preach to thousands um, with, with no amplification, obviously, um, but God really used him in, in a number of ways there. Now, here's the reason that I bring this event up, though. He is going to meet with, uh, in Boston, as he's getting ready, really, to start this tour, he's going to meet with the leading Anglican, Anglican ministers. He is an Anglican minister himself. Um, he's going to meet with them, though, as he really starts this tour. He's 25 years old. He's a young man, but he's been preaching for four years in uh, England especially, but in, in Britain. Uh, he's become well-known already, and a lot has been done to generate enthusiasm for his visit as he goes to Boston. The papers have really played up his visit. They've um, mentioned, they, they've shown some of his sermons in their paper. They've uh, published some of his journal. They've published some of the controversial things that have happened around George Whitfield. So he's finally here, and uh, he's um, in Boston. The morning that he is to meet with these Anglican leaders, he is first taken to meet the governor. Uh, then he's taken uh, to uh, attend prayers at Boston's old North Anglican Church. And then he goes to the home of Dr. Timothy Cutler, the Church of England's senior minister in New England. And as he would later write in his journal, it was time to face the music. In other words, there are a lot of people that aren't real happy with, with George Whitfield um, because of a number of things, one of which is that he's begun to preach outdoors, which, as, I, as you'll see uh, later on, is especially um, hard for the Anglican church to, to take. I mean, it was, it was really, you'll see as we look at um, uh, Wesley, that was really just against the, the custom. <clears throat> All right, so here's what happens, as, as uh, Whitfield records in his journal. As he sits down with these leading Anglican ministers as he's beginning this tour in Boston, uh, they, uh, he said well, they were cordial to him, but immediately began to challenge him in a number of ways. Now, these are the questions that, uh, that they asked. We hear that you called Gilbert Tennant, the Presbyterian revivalist in New Jersey, a faithful minister of Jesus Christ, but surely someone ordained as a Presbyterian could not be a real minister. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I'm a Presbyterian, so uh, glad that we live a little later than this day. Well, Whitfield averred that he did not, that he did indeed think Tennant was a faithful minister. Uh, we're not going to talk about Tennant much, but very involved in uh, the Great Awakening, in um, very famous Presbyterian who was on the revivalist side of things. In other words, really sought to see the Spirit of God work in significant ways. All right, so that was one question. Um, a second question, how come your supposed friend and colleague, Charles Wesley, supports the Church of England so vigorously, but you do not? Whitfield replied that he believed that God had changed Wesley's mind on this subject, and that now Wesley was as willing to work with non-Anglicans as Whitfield himself. Um, so, again, same kinds of questions. 
Um, we have heard that when you were in Savannah, you allowed a Baptist minister to take part in the communion service that you led. Could this really be true? Uh, Whitfield replied that not only was this rumor true, but that he was actually prepared himself as a properly ordained minister of the Church of England to receive communion from the hand of a Baptist. Now, this means, you know, it's so funny to us because we can't imagine having those kind of problems, but this was, these were huge issues uh, for the church, for the Anglican church, because really they saw themselves as the one true church. Um, and that's not unusual, especially when there was such a strong state church connection uh, back in that time in Britain um, and especially in Europe as uh, coming out of the Reformation. All right, well, that's kind of an introduction to something that is going to get us into evangelicalism. Um, what has happened is that there have been little revivals here and there in the colonies. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, of course, has been a part of that. Uh, you may know that now. But uh, it's not until Whitfield comes and is preaching to thousands and thousands of people uh, that the revivals really kind of connect, as it were, and... and um, this great awakening really begins to take place in mass, and you have just thousands of people converted. But in this meeting with the Anglican ministers, there are a number of things that he talks about in addition to this. Uh, he talks about the importance of uh, the new birth. In fact, he said, it's more important for me to preach uh, the new birth, conversion, and holiness in life than it is for me to preach or to hold fast to a certain form of church government. He said, I don't believe Jesus really was all that concerned about the forms of church government as he was about the new birth and then the godly kind of living that results from that. What, what um, Whitfield is doing is kind of helping to define a part of our history, really to kind of give us what we now call evangelicalism. Um, he will, in addition to these kinds of things, he is going to uh, speak to... Um, well, it's going to speak on a number of occasions, I should say, uh, in a way that will give us a new alliance. Uh, evangelicalism, what we now look back on history and say, this really is the beginning of evangelicalism. You, you can look at different ways of, of defining that, but, but let me just give you an excerpt from a sermon uh, that uh, came in one of his preaching tours, and here's where you'll get a sense of how Unimportant, he began to look at the, the form of church government or even being tied to a particular denomination. Now, if you've ever read anything about Whitfield, you will know that he's called the divine dramatist by a man named Harry Stout, a great historian, because he was very, very dramatic in his preaching. Um, uh, so much so that he could have been an actor. He was, he was in many ways, an actor, not in a wrong sense. He was just very, very gifted. And so he would... Um, I mean, he, he would... Uh, uh, be, he would just be used by God to move thousands and thousands of people into the kingdom. And partly because he was such a gifted, passionate preacher. Um, but here's, here's an excerpt from one of his sermons. Father Abraham, he's looking up at, at the heavens. This is what he would have done in a very dramatic way. Look at, looking up into the heavens, speaking to Father Abraham. Father Abraham, who do you have in heaven? Any Episcopalians up there? Nope. No Episcopalians. Uh, do you have any Presbyterians up there? No Presbyterians. Any independents or seceders? Nope, don't have any of those. Any Methodists? Now, he's a Methodist at this point, or at least in, in his thinking he's a Methodist. Uh, no, no, no. Well, who do you have up there then? We don't have those names, or we don't even know those names up here. All who are here are Christians, believers in Christ, men and women who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, is that so? Is that the case? Then God help us. 
God help us to forget all party names and to be Christians in deed and truth. Now, again, we, I would imagine we're pretty comfortable with that kind of thinking because I would imagine we're here because we're evangelicals and this, this fits us. This is who we are. But in that day, that was really, really new. A uh, very new idea that you would even consider, um, especially the non-state church, to be a true church of God. And uh, that, that something is more important than the denomination and the attachment to the church. It is, in fact, the, the idea that you are born again, have a new way of living, and uh, then have a, a, a commonality with many other people around the world. All right. That is... Um, I start with him because he, by this kind of preaching, by really diminishing the, the importance of denominations and by, by uh, being willing to work with people from all different churches, he really creates this new alliance that is going to become more and more important over the centuries. Uh, and that's, in, in a simple way, that really is how evangelicalism begins. Um, evangelicalism hasn't started its own denomination. We don't have a denomination. But what you'll find are evangelicals scattered around the world in all kinds of different denominations. All right. Well, that's, that's a brief intro uh, by way of looking at Whitfield. And now let me go um, beyond that to just kind of touch on an overview of evangelicalism uh, so that you have a sense very briefly of uh, what we mean by that, even more so than what we saw in Whitfield. Uh, if you've uh, read uh, McGrath's book on evangelicalism, you'll know that um, you really have the word uh, evangelical being used even by Catholic writers in the 16th century. Uh, at the end of um, the 15th century, beginning of the 16th century, a lot of Christians in the Catholic Church are beginning to recognize that, that something's wrong with the church. They become very, very burdened by... Um, a very heavy sacramental system that was, uh, the whole of salvation was tied to a very difficult way of life, a penitential system wrapped up with the sacraments, etc. And uh, um, it had become also very, very intellectual. Uh, scholasticism had ruled the day for several centuries. And so it had become, uh, for many, uh, just a religion of the mind to a large degree. And many people, Catholic writers, were calling for a kind of evangelical uh, way of, of practicing Christianity. Um, in the um, Reformation itself, you're going to have a number, of course, of writers begin to use uh, these terms in the 1520s, French term evangelique, and then uh, German term evangelist. Uh, those terms begin to be used. By the 1530s, though, the term Protestant is going to take over um, because it's, it's the idea is a protest to some degree against Catholicism. There are more things going on than that. But it is a protest that many people are then um, participating in against the kind of Catholic religion that had grown up. All right. Well, uh, 17th century, for the most part, the term Protestant has become uh, more well-known than uh, evangelical. But you do have works of devotion by Puritans and by Anglicans and some others who are using that word to call people back to a more biblical kind of Christianity, uh, one that does uh, then involve a significant change of heart, change of life, one that is lived, uh, in a sense, grounded in the gospel. Uh, in the 18th century, you've got a movement called Pietism, uh, which was a reaction to, uh, after the Reformation in the 16th century, 
uh, that was um, a movement to really bring us back to the scripture, back to, back to the things that are primary. It's a wonderful season in the history of the church in many ways, but within a hundred years, you also have then kind of a movement away from that and kind of a, a scholastic reform theology grows up. And then a kind of a dry orthodoxy grows up uh, in, in the midst of all that. And so you have this movement again as a reaction to, to some degree called pietism that's calling people back to a simpler faith, uh, one that is centered on the gospel, one that has to do with the heart, um, no divide between head and heart. Uh, the most famous uh, pietist would be a man named Philip Jacob Spainer, who was a Lutheran minister in Frankfurt, published a book called The Piety We Desire, and it called for a renewal of inward spiritual life, more active lay participation in day-to-day -day Christianity, less fixation on church order, and broader use of the Bible by everyone in the church. All right. Then you have uh, the Evangelical Revival and the Great Awakening, and this is where... Really, uh, when I talk about evangelicalism, when Mark Knoll does or David Bebbington, uh, they're primarily looking back to this time period uh, when um, you have Whitfield and Wesley and a number of others who are focusing on conversion, really focusing the church on um, being born again and the new life that comes uh, out of that. Now, um, in the 20th century... And I'm going through this quickly, and we're going to stop here in just about a minute. Uh, but in the 20th century, one of the things that uh, you'll see in McGrath's book is that the National Association of Evangelicals that was formed in 1942 very, very intentionally chose the term evangelical instead of fundamentalist. Um, it, it, was, it was their way of saying that some things have grown up around fundamentalism that we're not real happy with. Um, fundamentalism... Uh, well, let me, let me just stop here and I'll pause for a minute and ask the question. When you think of fundamentalism, what immediately comes to mind? Now, I, I've had time in the fundamentalist church. So I, I have some personal experience, and maybe some of you do as well, but even if you haven't, what immediately comes to mind when you think of the term fundamentalist? Separatism. Separatism, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a big part of it. That's right. What Legalism. else? What's that? Legalism. Legalism, okay. Yeah, that can very much be a part of it as well. Um, anything else? Stupidity. What's that? <laughs> Stupidity, is that what you said? Not particularly not particularly uh, Okay, so kind of an anti-intellectualism here. Yeah. Or stupidity. Both of them are just as well. Okay. Um, yeah, all of those things, uh, I think, can have been at times associated with the fundamentalist uh, movement. Anybody um, give specific examples of your own experience? Anything that you would think of that um, perhaps you've had to live through and that you would call fundamentalism? Yes. For about 15 years, my wife and I were a member of a independent church or mission, I guess you would say, and uh, served overseas. And, and I took real pride in... Uh, I was just finished seminary, and uh, boy, I thought, you know, I, we really had everything together. But even though I felt that way, there was a part of me that said something seems to be wrong <clears throat> because we are separate from everyone else. Uh, and on the mission field, when you're outside of America, just to see an American face, uh -huh. you know, that's an encouragement. And uh, <clears throat> so I found myself really fellowshipping outside of my group. Yet, 
because I was legalistic. <laughs> I didn't break any of the rules. Uh, but finally left the mission simply over the uh, thing that I could not agree to what is called second degree yes. separation. Yeah. Can you explain that for us? Well, uh, basically it was this. We were told when Billy Graham came out to Manila to have a big crusade that we could not participate as a counselor or with any mission that would do that. Uh, we could attend just as an observer. So second degree separation would be if you fellowship with someone who is not a fundamentalist, mm -hmm. then by association, you know, so I won't right. associate with you. That's right. It just yeah. Yeah, I ran into that very thing in England um, when I was preaching in a little village there, and so I know exactly what it's like. And it, uh, it was such a painful thing to see because this um, church had formed, it was an evangelical church, that had come out of a more liberal denomination. And what they essentially said when they formed was that um, if people didn't come out with them, then they could no longer even fellowship with them, even though they may be evangelicals within that more liberal denomination. And it was just so painful to say this was a tiny little 2,000-member village, and they severed relationships, long-term relationships. So, yeah, it's very sad. Anything else, personal experience that, uh, that you've had? Yes? I was told that going to graduate school was useless unless my sole purpose was to evangelize my Oh, interesting. Oh, okay. oh, wow. Okay. I read a book, something like that, when I was in college, and it, it really kind of messed me up for a while in my thinking. Okay. Wow. Did you um, know when you heard that, that 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 wasn't right, or did you kind of think, maybe that is right? I did, but it was a family member, so it was very disheartening and yeah. sort of discouraging. Okay. I didn't have the, um, I didn't know enough to respond well. Yeah. Right? I just responded emotionally. Okay, yeah, I hear you. I didn't know enough to respond well either when I heard that kind of thing, and I kind of embraced some of it for a long time. All right, um, well, anything else? Anybody else want to say anything that's just personal experience? Um, well, I went to uh, Clemson in South Carolina, undergraduate, and uh, I was involved with a Christian ministry there that was, uh, I came to Christ there, one of the college ministries was very influenced by Bob Jones, which was uh, a very fundamentalist uh, university just 30 miles away from Clemson. And I went to elementary school at All right, okay, yes. Yes, yes, it's everywhere. Um, and we were, uh, you know, I was a brand new Christian, and um, a number of things happened. The more I got involved with this group and participated in summer programs and, and uh all different Bible studies and things. One time we were living together, a group of guys were living together as part of this ministry for the summer, doing a uh, ministry program. And um, I remember that I came out of our my bedroom one time without a shirt. This was we didn't have air conditioning in this apartment. It was 100 degrees, and it was just guys having a Bible study. Just guys. There were no girls anywhere inside. So uh, I came out with just short pants on, thinking, you know, it's 100 degrees in this house. And my Bible study leader immediately sent me back to my room and said it was improper to have a Bible study without a shirt on. Now, I have no idea where that's found in the scriptures, but uh, I thought, is that right? And then they didn't really even want us to wear short pants around school. And I started thinking, you know, I'm a young Christian, but this just doesn't feel right. And so I was reading around the Gospels and I started to see the Pharisees. I thought, oh gosh, they had some of the same kinds of crazy rules. I'm not calling these guys Pharisees. They were great guys that I, I learned a lot from. But there were some legalisms, as, as you said, that were a part of this. All right. Well, there's a book called Growing Up Fundamentalist, Journeys in Legalism and Grace. And there's some, some kind of 
funny but sad, I guess, uh, illustrations of this. Let me just give a couple and then we'll move on. Um, but uh, with, in fundamentalist schools, as, as you'll know, and, um, and sometimes, of course, dress codes are very, very helpful, but there was, there were a, there was a time when very, very strict dress codes uh, emerged, uh, forbidding pants for women and, and fabricating biblical skirt length uh, formulas, you know, like, like somewhere in the Bible, we've been told exactly how long our skirt should be. And one, um, one I, I think that is still funny to me is that one school actually forbid women to wear polka dot dresses because they were afraid of where the polka dots might, might be on the dress. It's just kind of, you know, these bizarre kinds of rules that come up. Now, the saddest one to me, uh, no, the consequences weren't, weren't that bad, but the saddest one to me was uh, on one particular school, um, it was forbidden for guys to touch girls in any way. Absolutely not. Um, couldn't hold their hands, nothing. And uh, it was one night, um, a group of guys were walking on campus with a girl, one of the students there, and it was cold and icy, and she fell. And they wouldn't pick her up because they were so afraid to break the rule of the college. Now, a female faculty member later was very angry with them for not helping her, but what could they do? They were abiding by the rules. All right, so fundamentalism at times has had, um, it grew up, a lot of rules grew up uh, around, you know, the old kinds of things of, like, my grandmother wouldn't let us play cards because she thought it was associated with gambling uh, when I was a kid, and not even going to movies and those kinds of things. Um, the other thing that you've mentioned already is that there was a surrender of, of social concern. Um, and uh, with separation that, that you've talked about, there was a kind of separation from society. Uh, um, and here's, what, here's part of what happened uh, with, with fundamentalism. In a good way, when fundamentalism started in the 19th century, late 19th century, it really was a reaction against liberal theology. And so it was... Early on, it wasn't such an unhealthy movement. In fact, it was a really callback to um, biblical Christianity uh, against liberalism that was jettisoning everything. And so at first, fundamentalism was actually a healthy response. Uh, what happens, though, over time is that they begin to lose a lot of the battles, and they begin more and more to withdraw from engaging in society, even though 19th century evangelicals were very involved in society. Um, they begin to disengage from society. And one of the things that's going on as well is that you have um, a kind of uh, eschatology, a, a view of end times that grows up alongside of this that essentially says, uh, gives a very um, negative view of the end times. The world can't get any better, so there's no need in trying to make the world better. Let's just save as many people as we can and get them into heaven. And so that, that kind of becomes uh, a real big um, part of fundamentalism. And you have... The great evangelist, Dwight L. Moody, who uh, you know, is a hero to me in many ways, um, yet kind of preached this lifeboat ethic. In other words, the idea uh, for him was, um, I look on this world, this is how he put it, I look on this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and, and said, save all you can. You know, it was very much the idea that um, the world was like, um, was like uh, the Titanic. It's going down. And so really trying to fix culture or help politics or be involved in anything other than just saving souls, getting them to heaven, um, was like moving deck chairs around on the Titanic. So that kind of ethos led fundamentalists, who started out in a pretty healthy way, then to really withdraw from society and focus on holiness, which is a good thing to focus on, um, and getting people into the kingdom, which is also a good thing to, 
to um, focus on, but they truncated the, the bigger picture of what Christians are called to do. So that's why, for instance, you have um, in the 40s a number of people like Billy Graham um, who was hurt oftentimes by fundamentalists, um, who was deeply criticized at times by some fundamentalists. You had people like uh, Carl Henry, uh, Billy Graham, call for something not called fundamentalism, but they called themselves the National Association of Evangelicals, saying this is something different. We want to hold to the gospel, um, but we're not the same as what fundamentalism has become. All right. So from the 1730s, from the time of Whitfield, Wesley, and others, Edwards, you have uh, in evangelicalism a number of things that kind of um, begin to depict evangelicalism. Uh, did that answer your question, by the way, on fundamentalism versus evangelicalism? Okay, good. That's a really good question. Um, and here's uh, David Bevington's kind of summary of what evangelicalism has held to very, very consistently for, well, since the 1730s, basically. Uh, these four things. Conversion, or the belief that lives need to be changed. The Bible, or the belief that all spiritual truth is to be found in its pages. Activism, or the dedication of all believers, including lay people, to lives of service for God, especially as manifested in evangelism, spreading the good news, and mission, taking the gospel to other societies, and crucicentrism, or the conviction that Christ's death was the crucial matter in providing atonement for sin, reconciliation between a holy God and sinful humans. So um, there are a number of summaries of evangelicalism, uh, the main convictions or assumptions, uh, and this is a good one. Uh, you'll have in McGrath's book another summary that's, that's more detailed than this, but I think this is a helpful way to look at uh, what evangelicals have consistently been about, um, these, these four things. And there are others as well, but nevertheless, these, these have been very much a part. All right, uh, any questions or, or comments to this point? All right, let's go on and look at, um, let's look at John Wesley um, and... Uh, you know, I'm a Presbyterian, and I've been asked why I have a son named Wesley. And I, I have a son named Wesley because I have great respect for John Wesley and, and Charles Wesley. I don't agree with all of his theology because we are different in some ways. Um, but uh, we named our middle child Wesley after John Wesley. And uh, when we were in, uh, I have to tell you my favorite Wesley story because... This is the best way I know to introduce Wesley to you. Um, when we were in uh, Edinburgh, we took a, a little short vacation to go down to London. And we took our children, of course, with us. We had three children, Wesley being our middle child. And it happened to be Wesley's fourth birthday while we were down in London. Now, he's, so he's this tall. And um, we decided while he was there, on his birthday, we'd take him to John Wesley's last chapel and house just to kind of you know, make a big event for our little four-year-old boy. And so we get there uh, to the chapel, and right in the, uh, right in the courtyard is this huge statue of Wesley. Looks like he's got a Bible open and preaching. And I thought, oh, this is the perfect teachable moment. This is it. And so I sat my Wesley down on my lap right in front of this statue. And I said, Wesley, this man's name is John Wesley. And we named you after him because he was a godly man. And we want you to grow up to be a godly man like he was. And Wesley just about cried. He looked at me and said, but Dad, I want to be a cowboy. <laughs> oh, man. I, he wasn't old enough for me quite to be able to explain that he could be a cowboy and a Christian at the same time. 
All right, so that's my introduction to Wesley. Let me actually give you a better introduction to Wesley. Uh, it's January. It's very, very cold. It is 1736, and the ship Simmons is bound for Savannah, Georgia, and it um, runs into some very violent Atlantic storms. Well, there is a man on this ship. He's a slight, built Anglican minister. He's very young, and he is frozen in fear. He is scared to death. John Wesley had preached the gospel of eternal salvation to others, but he was so afraid to die. And yet, on this ship, he noticed that there were a group of Moravians who were not afraid. In fact, they were singing hymns during the worst of the storm that eventually buckled the main sail. So this is a significant storm that they're in, in the middle of the Atlantic. And after the storm was over, Wesley went over to these Moravians and said, weren't you afraid to die? And they said, no, we're not afraid to die. And, they said, and then he said, weren't your children and your, your women afraid to die? No. And, and then they went on to say that they had assurance of Christ's uh, salvation given to them. And uh, Wesley wrote in his journal that this was the most glorious day I have ever seen. Now, the problem uh, for Wesley, though, was while it was a glorious day, uh, he had a form of godliness, and even though he was going over to Savannah to be a minister to Indians who had settled, who lived along the coast, and settlers who were moving to um, to uh, Savannah, he was not yet a converted follower of Christ. He believed the Bible, but he didn't have the power of the Word in his life, and not the power of the Spirit. And so that story really shaped him because he saw something that he had never um, really seen before in his own life. Now, um, when we look at evangelicalism, and we looked at it Whitfield just briefly, and we're going to look at Wesley now, they're living at the same time. And they're living at a time when um, you're going to have these beginnings of revivals uh, taking place in America, uh, in um, Britain, in um, you've got Scotland. England, Wales, um, you've got Germany, in, in all kinds of places you have these, these revivals beginning to take place. And um, yet, when you look at the situation in, in England, it's really surprising that England became a place where revival uh, took root. Because it was a very tough place at the time, um, right before Wesley's day, or right during, actually, his day and Whitfield's day. Maybe a good way to kind of picture that. I don't know if you can see this well, but uh, there was a man named uh, William Hogarth who, who painted a number of things or drew a number of uh, pictures or depictions of life uh, in England at the time. Uh, he has another, this is called Gin Lane, um, depicting the idea that many, many people drank a lot of gin and did very, very little else. Um, there's, I think he's got one called Beer Street, but you can see what he's essentially doing. I mean, here is a mother who apparently has been nursing her child. Uh, she is passed out drunk and her baby is falling off the stairs. And what he's doing is depicting the hellish um, situation that you found in England in this, day, in this time period. Um, godlessness really uh, ruled the day in, in many, many ways. Um, there's a lot more we could say about that, but let me just say this, because I think it's something that gives you a sense of how important the evangelical revival is that Wesley, Whitfield, and others then will, will be used by God to bring about. 
Many, many people, uh, historians have said that um, you know, because of what was going on in France, French Revolution, um, had it not been for the evangelical revival in England, that England would have had something similar. Um, in other words, you know, in France, there was a real hard push against any kind of Christianity. And uh, that ended up winning the day to a large degree. And yet, in England, even though they were headed possibly in that direction, the evangelical revival that we're looking at uh, today really changed that. Now, so the situation in England is bad. The situation in the Church of England, which would have been the state church, the one really legal church uh, in England, though there were some non-conforming churches that were allowed at the time, uh, the situation in, in the Church of England was not much better. What you have at this point in time is... Uh, a number of people who have really embraced the Enlightenment to such a degree that they're no longer really interested in biblical Christianity, uh, but instead are kind of more focused on manners and that kind of thing. Uh, for instance, uh, Voltaire said about an English sermon during this day that it was a solid but sometimes dry dissertation that a man reads to the people without gesture and without particular exaltation of the voice. In other words, very bland. And, and that was prized. Uh, um, and you'll see that kind of thing with John Tillotson, Archbishop of Canterbury, when he said, uh, essentially vigorously denounced what he called religious enthusiasm. This included any emotional expression encouraged by fervent preachers. He and his fellow latitudinarians, very, very broad church, believing in all kinds of things, stressed instead proper behavior. Men should reform their conduct. They should be generous, humane, and tolerant, and avoid bigotry and fanaticism. Now... These are good things to do, but what you do, if you look behind what he's saying and look at the sermons that they were preaching, for the most part, they weren't looking at all at any kind of um, conversion. They weren't looking at union with Christ or the essential doctrines of the faith, sin, etc. They were just saying, let's be good moral people. Uh, moderate kind of living style is what they were calling for. All right. Um, well, into the midst of all of that comes John Wesley. And I want to just speak to his life for a few minutes as we, as we look at this. Because in one way, if you could say, Whitfield in many ways initiates uh, so much of what is going on. Um, Wesley is going to come along right behind him and alongside of him at times and kind of consolidate. Uh, Whitfield had no administrative ability, really. Um, Wesley is an administrative genius. And so he will organize these Methodist societies. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, Wesley... Um, Born in 1703, came uh, from a home that was steeped in what is called decency and order, which would have fit the day. Uh, he has a father, the Reverend Samuel Wesley, a very learned, devout high churchman, ministering in a place called Epworth uh, in, uh, in England. And John's mother, Susanna, was the daughter of a nonconformist minister. Now, they had 19 children. And uh, Wesley, uh, John Wesley was the 15th of these children. And uh, it was said that um, Susanna uh, taught them to fear the rod and cry softly. I'm not sure that's something we should adopt today. But anyway, she was, she was very, very methodical. She would um, actually make sure that she spent time with each of her 19 children each week to instruct them in their faith. So she was very, very organized. And she was a very godly woman. She could be stern at times. But uh, uh, Wesley looked back really to her uh, influence in a significant way. Uh, when Wesley was six years old, the rectory uh, at Epworth burned down, and everybody escaped except for John Wesley. And nobody knew that he was still in the house that was burning until a neighbor saw him on the second floor window 
Uh, he, he was able to jump out. He was rescued, etc. But uh, from that time period, uh, from that fire, uh, he called himself a brand plucked from the burning. And he had a real sense that God had saved his life for something, but he had no idea what. But he looked back to that as a kind of defining moment in his life. All right. He will um, go to uh, Oxford to study. And while there, his brother Charles is there as well. Both of them were pretty disheartened at the um, religion that was in the school. It was basically a kind of deism to a large degree. Um, a lot of ways we could talk about deism, but coming out of enlightenment uh, thought, it was, uh, and all of the science that was developing up in the time, it was the idea that God had kind of started, um, created this world, and set these um, laws into motion so that he didn't have to really be involved with the world anymore. It's kind of like a a clockmaker who starts the clock and then lets it take care of itself. So it's a very uh, a picture of, of God who's very aloof from his people. And, and Charles and John were disheartened by that. And so this group of uh, students who wanted to be holy started gathering themselves to try to figure out um, what it would be like to live for Christ in the midst of a place that wasn't really encouraging that. And they were mocked by being called the Holy Club. Now, uh, George Whitfield would become a part of this. John and Charles both are a part of this. And uh, very quickly on, John Wesley becomes the leader because he is very, very gifted at leadership. Well, they read a number of books, including uh, Thomas Akimbis' Imitation of Christ. They read uh, some really good books, but what they found in those books was was, um, what to do or how to live as Christians, but not how to become uh, converted Christians. And so uh, Wesley would look back on this time later on and... uh, essentially say that he was almost a Christian at this time. Well, um, both uh, Charles and John Wesley would go to Georgia as missionaries, and it was an utter, abysmal failure. Uh, All the time he said, I was in Georgia, I was beating the air, being ignorant of the righteousness of Christ, I sought to establish my own righteousness. He went to be a missionary there, and there's a statue there now uh, of Wesley, that Methodists are very proud of, but I'm sure John Wesley is not very proud of because it was the worst time in his ministry. He had zero success. I mean, it was horrible. Um, all right, so he returns to uh, back to London, back to England, um, where finally he will be converted. Um, there was a time when one of the Moravian leaders that had so influenced him going over uh, on the ship had asked this question, do you know Jesus Christ? Wesley replied, I know that he is savior of the world. The Moravian leader then said, true, but do you know that he saved you? And Wesley could not answer that. Well, goes back to England. And finally, um, at a meeting, at a Moravian society meeting that he goes to in Aldersgate Street. It's uh, May 24, 1738, 8.45 p.m. We know that because he left us this wonderfully detailed journal. Uh, He said this. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter to nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. All right, it's very clear that um, at this point he now has uh, an assurance of his salvation. As you read his journals, it's very, very clear that his life has changed. He has a sense of purpose. 
Uh, he's discovered his life's message. He wants to preach, uh, preach this. But he doesn't know how to go about it. And so what he's going to do is try to kind of sort through it very methodically, as, as he will do. I mean, he, he will become um, known as the founder of the Methodist Church because he is very methodical, like his mother. Uh, he will travel to Herrenhut where, uh, in Germany, where the Moravians uh, were, to see if that... Um, is a, a way for him to maybe to live his life and decides against that for a number of reasons. Um, he appreciates the fact that they have this assurance of salvation. He appreciates their uh, belief in the justification of, of us by faith alone. He appreciates their small group ministry. Actually, there's a significant small group ministry that, as, a, as an aside, really kind of is started here and the, the history of small group ministry in the church in a big way begins with the Moravians. But that's an aside. Um, but he doesn't, at the end of the day, like it all that much because he, he sees some self-righteousness as there. And he also sees that, um, that this kind of personality cult has grown up around this leader called Count von Zinden, Zinzendorf. And, uh, and he kind of wrote at one point, isn't the Count all in all? In other words, he was a big personality and a number of Christians lived on his plantation, huge plantation. Um, and he, he, just, he leaves there appreciative of them, but knowing that that is not uh, who he's going to be. Um, later, as he's walking to London, not too much later after this, he reads an account by Jonathan Edwards of the many conversions that are going on in America. Now, that instantly has a huge impact on, on uh, Wesley. Um, he doesn't change it. He's still kind of uh, not having any success, so to speak, in, in his own preaching ministry. But then George Whitfield, who had, who had gone to uh, Georgia with them as well, uh, comes along. And uh, as I said earlier, Whitfield had begun preaching outdoors. And essentially, what he's going to do is ask Wesley to join him outdoors. Now, that is uh, a huge problem for John Wesley. Um, he's going to do it. But I want to just kind of show you uh, how hard it was for him to do it. First of all, um, Wesley is no match for Whitfield. Whitfield was an incredible orator. Uh, and, and Whitfield was a very, uh, Wesley was a very reserved gentleman and scholar. Just they're two very different personalities. But beyond that, the whole idea of um, preaching under uh, the sky, he, he presents in this way. This again is from uh, Wesley. Having been all my life so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order, I should have thought that the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. Now, this is a truly where he is. I mean, he is scared to death of the idea of preaching outside. And here's why. Um, in Britain, uh, the Anglican Church, uh, Anglican Church and, and the state, of course, are very, very closely related. And the Anglican rector in any village or area essentially ruled the day. And you could only preach, hold services in that community if, if, if you were Presbyterian or Baptist, some kind of non-conforming, somebody not Anglican. Uh, you can only hold services if you got a special license from the rector, the Anglican rector, to do so. Um, and uh, one of the most, um, well, one of the most absolute religious conventions was that preaching took place on Sundays and it was done in the churches. Anything else was considered not only rebellion against the church, but rebellion against the state. So it's a huge problem for Wesley to do this. Nevertheless, he decides uh, to do so. Um, very reluctantly at first, he, he said, I went more as a martyr than a joyous messenger. Um, but here is where you see Wesley really find his calling. And uh, here's, 
Here's again, thank God for his journals. And here's what he said. At four, this is his first preaching outdoors. At four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little hill uh, in a ground adjoining to the city to about 3,000 people. Uh, scripture on which I spoke was this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, recovery to the sight of the blind, to set uh, at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, um, everything changes for Wesley at, at this point. He really um, had been a very anxious, insecure preacher until this event. And at this point forward, he becomes this firebrand that he had seen himself as, as a six-year-old. And this is what he said, um, I look upon all the world as my parish. I judge it my bounden duty to declare unto all willing to hear the glad tidings of salvation. Now, um, let's see. Oh. All right, maybe we're done. I'm not done yet, but maybe the slide's done. <laughs> Almost done. All right. Um, you want to go to the back to the last slide? Okay. Let me see if I can get back there. There you go. Okay. Um, you know, what's going on is that Whitfield and Wesley are now reaching um, the poor. People who did not and would not go to church. Um, uh, you'll have, uh, for instance, when Whitfield starts, he, he begins to speak to um, people coming out of the coal mines early in the morning. And uh, it was recorded of him that, of his preaching to the miners, that you would see these black sooted faces begin to weep and you'd see the kind of the tear stains down their, their faces because God was, was uh, moving in such a wonderful way here. And you'll have Wesley then preaching in jail, in jails to prisoners, in inns to wayfarers on vessels crossing to Ireland. At one natural amphitheater in Cornwall, John Wesley preached to 30,000 people at one time without any kind of amplification other than this natural uh, amplification that he would have, had, would have had in this amphitheater. Now, um, at one point, too, um, because the Anglican church, the official church, is going to become pretty angry with people like Phil Wesley, uh, he has even refused to preach uh, at his father's church. After his father has died, he's not allowed to preach. And so Wesley goes outside, stands on his, his father's tomb, and preaches to the crowd that gathers around him there. Uh, he would preach anywhere that he could find a place to, to do. And let me just um, give you a few things, and then we'll wrap up with, with this one. But in his diary um, in, uh, on 28 June 1774, Wesley said that he uh, traveled a minimum of 4,500 miles per year. Uh, that meant 250,000 miles in his lifetime, 10 times around the world. And he traveled mostly on horseback. And Wesley learned how to uh, loosen the reins of his horse on the horse and sit back and read books and write sermons. Can you imagine having to do that today? <laughs> I complain if my back is a little sore from the nice, comfortable chair that I've got. Well, um, it was not uh, an easy time. Um, many people were really upset with Wesley and, and Whitfield. And in his early years of itinerating, the crowds were not always friendly. So you'd have rocks and stones and all kinds of other missiles being thrown at them. Uh, sometimes incited by the local Anglican rector, you would have mobs actually beat him up. 
Uh, so his life was, was in danger time and time again from what happened. And um, in his diary, he records one of my, my, this is probably my favorite section in his diary, but this is what he said. Sunday a.m. May 5th, preached in St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. <laughs> Sunday p.m. May 5th, preached in St. John's, deacons said get out and stay out. Sunday a.m. May 12th, preached in St. Jude's, can't go back there either. <laughs> Sunday a.m. May 19th, preached in St. Somebody Else's. Deacons called special meeting and, I, and said I couldn't return. Sunday p.m. May 19th, preached on street, kicked off street. Sunday a.m. May 26th, preached in Meadow, chased out of Meadow as bull was turned loose during the service. Uh, <clears throat> Sunday a.m. June 2nd, preached on the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday p.m. June 2nd, afternoon, preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came out to hear me. Uh, it's a wonderful little example of perseverance. And, and God, you know, really, really blessed. Um, Wesley had little fear of man. He um, had this strange personal uh, magnetism that often uh, really kind of awed and subdued these very turbulent crowds. In all, he probably delivered about 40,000 sermons, uh, average of more than two a day. And he only quit preaching early in the morning before dawn when he was in his mid-80s. He died in uh, March of 1791. He was almost 88 years old. There were about 80,000 followers in England and 40,000 in North America, uh, which seems small to us now, but it was a huge number at that time. And if we judge greatness by influence, he was among the greats of his times. Uh, Whitfield, as I've said, had no real taste for organization. Wesley was an administrator of genius. And these Methodist societies essentially grew up all around him wherever he went. And uh, that later, of course, uh, evolved into the Methodist Church, which has more than 20 million adherents worldwide today. But his impact really um, was much greater. Uh, the revival that he represents carried far beyond the Methodist Church. It really did renew the religious life of England uh, and her colonies us. It elevated the life of the poor, stimulated missions overseas, and the social concerns of evangelicals in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, was Wesley a, a perfect man? Absolutely not. He had a terrible marriage. You know, in the midst of all of this ministry, he had a terrible marriage. Um, there's no need to really talk about that, but it's just it goes back to Dan's point. Great men and women in the history of the church oftentimes had great failures, and he did uh, in, his, in his marriage. But nevertheless, God used him in a tremendous way as he will use us who also have our own failures. Um, and I, I think when we look at these folks, you know, sometimes we should be inspired because we see great events. Sometimes we should be encouraged because we see God do great things through very fallen people like us. All right. Let me take a break there. And uh, do you want to take, uh, what, a few minutes before we look at the DVD then? Or what would you like? Yeah, to why don't we take a 10... Sounds good. Ten minute break. Uh, there is stuff to keep you energized.